Genesis 33 to continue our series. I actually was excited about last Wednesday night teaching this and then just mildly disappointed that we had a Thursday night, Thursday morning service instead. And so here we are in Genesis 33 going through this amazing foundational book. And we're going to do so tonight. And I hope you'll read all the verses. There's a lot of them tonight. This is an ongoing story. And think about it. We're just a few verses on creation, chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter on this family. There's a reason for that. Genesis 33, verse 1, and Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, Esau came. Remember, this is that reunion. Jacob's nervous about it. He's got his 400 men. And uh, it's been 20 years. He doesn't know. The last thing he remembered that his brother said to him was, I'm going to slit your throat. It was his last words. He doesn't know how he feels. There were no emails in those days. They couldn't text each other. He didn't know. And so it says, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau came, and with him 400 men. And he divided the children unto Leah and unto Rachel and unto the two handmaids. Father, thank you for your word. And please, God, help us to focus on thy truth for us, for this place, for tonight, and that our lives will be changed by it. This is light in a dark world. Thank you for truth. Thank you for light. May we embrace it and be changed by it, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things you can be absolutely certain about when it comes to the will of God, and especially the divine plan of God through his covenant, is that Satan is going to do whatever he can possibly to derail what God had already promised way back in the beginning of this series in his word. The promise that God made in the Garden of Eden concerned, as you know, the seed of a woman. It was a promise that ends with the destruction of Satan. And of course, the continuation of that promise includes what we now know as the Abrahamic covenant. essentially says that a certain nation will come from a certain family that will bring forth a certain child, and that child will bruise the head of Satan. So that, you know what, as soon as Satan realizes now that Abraham is the father of that same nation, he has sought to destroy that very seed. Ishmael was the result of unbelief, lack of faith, when the devil tempted Abraham to go down into Egypt and then taking Hagar to his wife. In fact, all through the life of Abraham, all that we've studied and Isaac, you can see this constant battle, this constant spiritual opposition at work. Satan tries everything that he can to circumvent the plan of redemption. I remember many, many years ago, Benjamin was listening on the news and Osama bin Laden was was ranting and raving. This was before the 9-11 attacks. And he was talking about the evils of the West and the great Satan, the USA. And Ben was little and he said, Dad, he said, what is his problem? And I, and I said this to him. I said, Ben, just keep on listening, and sooner or later you're going to hear his problem, the big problem. And it will come when you hear the word Israel. And it didn't take long before that man called the USA, quote, the big Israel. So since Jacob is now named Israel, and since Jacob has the birthright the spiritual father of that promised seed, since Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, what do you suppose Satan is now going to do about that? You see, folks, remember when God surrounded Jacob with that great host of angels, remember that? There was this great host of angels protecting him. They were warriors. You don't know why they were there? Because Jacob needed them. 
Because Satan was out to destroy him. Satan knows full well who Jacob was. And of course, he doesn't want him to return to Bethel. He doesn't want him to go back with his 12 sons and continue this promise, continue this Abrahamic covenant, so that if he can't get past a host of angels and dash Jacob's head, he'll have to resort to other methods. After all, Jacob may be a believer, as we noted in our last study, but he's also a man. He is a man with all the fears, all the temptations of the flesh that we all have. Let's go back now, verse 2. And Jacob put the handmaids and their children foremost. In other words, here comes Esau, 400 men, looks like an army. He's wondering, are we going to be destroyed? So he put the handmaids and their children in the front, and Leah and her children after, and Rachel and Joseph hindermost. The reason, obviously, Jacob arranged his household like this is that with his, his now brother who said, I'm going to slit your throat, I'm going to kill you, coming with his 400 men, he's very concerned. He's afraid. He's afraid of Esau's intentions, so he put the more, shall we say, expendable members of his family in the front. In other words, he had, the hand, Leah and her children were second. The handmaids and their children were in the front. And then, guess who's in the back? You really knew where he stood in Jacob's family. And you'll notice who's put last. See verse 2, the last line? Rachel and Joseph hinder most. There he is, little Joe Cartwright. And I can tell you right now that this obvious coddling and this preference for Joseph that's already being seen here, that's going to plant seeds of resentment that we're all going to study about a few weeks from tonight. And the sad thing is, all of it is unnecessary. All of this is a lack of faith. I tell you something, folks. After all that God has shown, after all that he has done for, for Jacob, after revealing himself at Jabok and Maenaim and Bethel, and still here he is, he's still resorting to scheming, to plotting and planning. He's afraid. Now, folks, look, fear will come upon you. It does. It comes upon all of us. Just don't let it come into you. Don't let it run your life. Don't make your decisions based upon fear. You know, all I can say is it's a good thing that God, our Father, is not petty. It's a good thing that our God is long-suffering. Verse 3, And he passed over before them and bowed himself to the ground. I'm going to give Jacob credit where it's due. He's a work in progress. He's growing. He had had that wonderful encounter with the Lord Jesus himself. He's not the same man he was 20 years before this. He's showing some courage. He's going in front all by himself. He goes all the way to the front. Doesn't, he goes all alone ahead of all the others. He meets Esau, and he meets this army of men. Courage, you know, is not the absence of fear. He's afraid. Courage is acting in spite of one's fears. And this isn't the first time he shows some courage. He then also shows his fears. Verse 3 again. He passed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. You can picture this, right? He walks a little bit and then he falls. When it says bows himself to the ground, you, you picture the Middle East. He, he prostrates his face on the ground. He walks a little more. He actually limps. 
and then he falls down again on his face. It, I, it's a reminder, I remember in 1991 when the so-called, you know, the great Republican, Republican army, they called him over there, how that the first day in that Gulf War, they were just bowing and bowing in their surrender in total and absolute fear. That's what he's doing here seven times. Jacob bows himself to the ground. And then he reaches Esau, verse 4, and Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Esau doesn't get credit sometimes. People love to quote in the New Testament, you know, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, Esau being a nation. This man, God shows mercy to Esau as well, as you'll see, as a man. And look at him, he's, he's more forgiving than Jacob ever gave him credit for. Verse 5, And he lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are those with thee? And he said, The children which God hath graciously given thy servant. By the way, See that word God there? It's not used all that often in all these narratives. What ja it's interesting here that Jacob uses the word Elohim when talking to his twin brother here and not the word Jehovah. That's what's usually used, capital L-O-R-D. He uses the word Elohim, not the covenant name. You also see it in verse 11. Take, I pray thee, my blessing that is brought to thee, because God, Elohim, hath graciously dealt with me. He didn't speak of the Lord, the covenant name for God, because he obviously doesn't think Esau knows him. So his testimony begins with a creative name for God, the one you would use towards lost people. Go to verse 6. And the handmaidens came near, they and their children, and they bowed themselves. And Leah also with her children came near and bowed themselves. And after that, and after came Joseph near and Rachel, and they bowed themselves. And he said, What meanest thou all by the, by the drove which I met? And he said, These are to find grace in the sight of my Lord. And Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep that thou hast unto thyself. Esau says, What's with all the herds? What's all this stuff? And Jacob says, This is a gift. The truth of the matter is, there's really a peace ransom. And once again, it's unnecessary. All Jacob had to do was believe God's promise. And he had to do any of this stuff. And Esau says, I don't need that. He's really the better man in some ways. Verse 10. And Jacob said, Nay, I pray thee, if now I have found grace in thy sight, then receive my present at my hand. Therefore have I seen thy face, as though I had seen the face of God, and thou wast pleased with me. Take, I pray thee, my blessing that is brought to thee because God hath dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. And he urged him. You know, he just said, come on, you have to take it. This is, this is a Middle Eastern tradition as well, being very hospitable and gracious, and the Bible says, and he took it. And he said, let us take our journey and let us go, and I will go before thee. And he said to him, my Lord knoweth that the children are tender and the flocks and the herds with younger with me and, and if men should overtake them, then one day the flock will die. And so basically what he's saying, if you read this context in the text, as tactfully as he can say it, Jacob is saying, I, I want to travel alone. I don't want to travel with Esau is what he's saying. And so Esau at least wants to give Jacob some of his warriors to protect him as they journey along. And he does. You might be wondering, beloved, why all of this detail, and there's a lot here, 
And I encourage you tonight to go home and read. Read verses 15, 16, 17, the verses before it. Read all of it. You might wonder why the detail is in the Bible and especially the whole sordid story, the dark, depraved story in chapter 34. Why? And beloved, the reason is that this is a critical point. This is a crucial point both in the life of Jacob and for, again, this Abrahamic covenant. Why? Because what it says in verse 17, And Jacob journeyed to Succoth, and built him a house, and made booths for his cattle. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. You see, think for a moment, beloved, about where he's at. Where is this? This is not Canaan. This is Succoth. This is on the east side of Jordan. In other words, this is short of God's command because this is short of the promised land. And of all things, the Bible says that he builds a house there. You read that, right? He built a house there. The pilgrim became a builder and a settler. Fortunately, he doesn't stay there very long. He doesn't stay there forever. But while he's there, he makes another mistake, which is always the case. Verse 18, and Jacob came to Shalem, a city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padanaram and pitched his tent before the city. And he bought a parcel of a field where he had spread his tent at the hand of his children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of money. And he erected there an altar and called it El Elohi Israel, which basically means mighty is the God of Israel. Now, folks, please don't miss this. Is Satan at work in Jacob's life? Oh, yes, he is. Is Satan still trying to destroy the promise and the covenant of God from the seed of a woman through a certain family, certain nation, certain person would come the Redeemer that would destroy Satan by his head? Oh, yes, he is. And now you're going to see how he's going about it. Jacob finally moves to Shalem where he buys some property. Shalem, of course, is in the promised land, but barely. It's barely in the promised land. And the real problem is Jacob is supposed to be all the way back, according to God's command, go back to Bethel. And in fact, he made a vow, you recall, to turn back to Bethel. So why is he building a house over here? But here he is, finally crosses, and the Bible says he's sort of pitching his tent toward a wicked Canaanite city. Almost, almost separated from the world. You know, one of the things that, that parents need to understand is that your unwillingness to separate from the world may not have obvious, immediate effects on your spiritual life at 40 years of age. You're fairly set. But oh, it will have an obvious effect on your children. So guess what? Not surprisingly, the very next verse, the very next verse in chapter 34, verse 1 says this. And Dinah, the daughter of Leah, which she bare unto Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. Uh-oh. Now follow this very carefully. Chapter 34 in verse 1 is a brand new horrible chapter in the life of this man and this family. Dinah, by this time, is a teenage girl. 
This teenage girl decides to test the waters of the big city lights to rub elbows with the Canaanite girls. And of course, do not miss what the Holy Spirit of God does with this narrative. The last word in the previous chapter, you may have noticed in verse 20, includes the name of God. We just read it, and we told you what it means. Mighty is the God of Israel. The first verse of the next chapter, chapter 35, if you notice, it includes the name. It begins with God. So that note this carefully. The fact that chapter 33 ends with God and chapter 35 begins with God highlights the amazing omission of God entirely in chapter 34. The name of God is not mentioned one time in this entire chapter, which explains why this is one of the single darkest chapters in all of the Bible. Genesis 34 is a reminder of what happens in a society whenever God himself is excluded in society. We're starting to see it in our own society now. In this case, what Dinah does is loosen a stone that's going to cause a whole avalanche. In fact, let me just read to you what what, uh, John Phillips, the Bible teacher, wrote about this. It's worth listening to. He says, we make every possible allowance for this young woman, Dinah. The nomadic life in which she had been raised did nothing to equip her for the temptations of the exciting city nearby. Such moral training as she might have received did not arm her against the flatteries of a dashing young prince like Shechem. The world can also look very attractive and alluring to children brought up in the shelter of a Christian home. Often those brought up in godless homes know by bitter experiences what a shallow, shameful place the world is. Those brought up in a separated environment often find the world fascinating That is, if they have not been taught to fear it. Whatever Jacob was up to, we wonder to allow his daughter such freedom in such a place. Perhaps he just had no idea whose Dinah's companions were, but if so, more's the pity. A young person's peers very quickly become the most important opinion makers in his life, and peer pressure, once established, is very strong. So off Dinah went to visit her unsaved friends, and of course, she was seen. Shechem saw her, recognized her, made a point to get to know her better. The moral principles of Shechem, however, were not those of the spiritually-minded Jacob, and Dinah soon forgot her father's principles under under the spell of that charmer from Shechem. She was no match for him. Here she was, a country girl, being paid court by a prince of the realm. He swept her off her feet persuaded her that her father's scruples were old-fashioned, persuaded her that that moral standards were relative, not absolute, and that in Shechem, and indeed in all of Canaan, quote, everybody did it. There was no sin in it. It was just doing what came naturally. So throwing caution and even common sense to the winds, Dinah gave in. And all I can say to that, as a youth pastor for many, many years and a pastor teaching high schoolers for many, 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 many years, all I can say to that is amen, amen, and amen. And yes, it is time, and it is true, Jacob and Rebekah are derelict here. They themselves have dropped the ball as her parents when it comes to protecting their daughter from a very, very evil world. And, of course, it began, again, follow this, it began by not being separated themselves, by putting their daughter so very close to the world. So what happens? Verse 2. 
And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her. By the way, of course he saw her. We have guys come in these doors all the time from the world, and they see these young ladies. Of course he saw her. Godless young men always see the virtuous girls and almost always want them. In this case, it happens to be the prince. Oh, the prince of the city. This is the kid with the money and the nice car and the famous last name. Oh, he's, he's a hottie. And, of course, he's used to having his way. And, of course, for Dinah, this is bad news because she's a teenage girl. So what does that mean, Pastor, teenage girl? You know, no brains. I told you, I worked with teenagers for 40 years. I know. Raised three of them. Verse 2, when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hevite prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and defiled her. And his soul clave unto Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. And he loved the damsel and spake kindly unto the damsel. Can I say something here? Now follow this carefully because you have to read the narrative to see what it says. The Hebrew word for defile here is anak. It means to oppress. Just because he, quote, spake kindly to her, as the Bible says here in verse 3, that doesn't mean that he treated her kindly. Proverbs warns about those whose words and lips are smoother than oil. You can speak kindly to people. You can be suave. Guy can be very kind with their words. The last line of verse 7 is still true. This thing ought not to have been done. But pastor, he's a prince. Verse 19 says he was, quote, more honored than, than any brother in his house. That word honor means he was more popular. As in Gaston or somebody like that. Absalom was a prince too. So that in no way you understand was this an act of love, not God's love. The words of verse 2, if you think about it, are like pistol shots in a single syllable. He saw her, he took her, he defiled her, he kept her. He's an autocrat, so he uses his power and not his virtues to win her. And I've seen guys like this. They're everywhere. The woods are full of them, parents. The woods are full of them. Full of ego and cash. They are usually propped up and promoted by their powerful fathers who always make excuses for them. And of course, Dinah, at first, you know, she's flattered. She's intrigued by this godless prince. But her one curious step forward was more than he needed to steal her virtue. And now he wants her. He wants her as his wife, but not in the soulmate kind of way, as in the ownership kind of way. Verse 4 says, And Shechem spake unto his father, Hamor saying, get me this damsel to wife. I want her for my own. Go down to verse 8. And Hamor communed with him, saying, the soul of my son Shechem longeth for your daughter. I pray, I ask you, give her him to wife. You know, parents, it, you know it wouldn't hurt your children for you to say no to them here and there? Your child want social media when they're 11 years old and you just say yes. They want an iPhone when they're 10 with all kinds of access to the internet and you just say, sure, I trust my child. They want their own television cable in their room just for themselves. They want to date in middle school, yes. 
They want to have a car. They want to dress their own certain way. They want to go to concert. And you just, yes, yes, yes. It's all yes. Don't you think that that unlimited cell phone and late night TV and internet at all hours, don't you think that's allowing a serpent in your child's room? You wouldn't allow a physical material serpent. But these days it's carte blanche with these young people because it's the way of the Canaanites. It's what the Canaanites do. So I can't be weird and my children can't be weird or different. But how about saying no? You know, it is your job, mom and dad, to say no to the things that you know are going to hurt them. It's your calling. Which brings us why this entire story is a satanic attack on God's covenant. Verse 9. And making marriages with us. So he says, I, you know, I want your daughter for my son. And then he says, and make ye marriages with us. And give your daughters unto us. And take our daughters unto you. Uh-oh. Now look, folks, Hamer doesn't know this. But you do recognize what he's suggesting here. If that had been carried out, what you're reading right now, had Jacob gone along with that, and this is not unappealing at all, it would have doomed the entire race of man to an eternity in hell. That's what's at stake. There would have never been a Redeemer. Because this would have truncated God's entire plan of, of redemption. He is suggesting, and he is offering to Jacob three things. Number one, society. Hey, let's join. Your people, my people, two cities, two towns, two villages, let's all join. And again, that's, that's not without appeal to Jacob. His sons were of marriage age, and, and where are they going to find their wives and princesses? no less, were available to his sons. He offers society. Number two, he offers security. Verse 10, And ye shall dwell with us, and the land shall be before you. Dwell with us. Join hands with us. That's what cities are all about. Join hands with us. This was a hostile pagan world at that time. It was a dangerous world. Please understand that. This was appealing to him. Any alliance with a powerful clan would mean security. So what's the devil offering through Hamor? Society? Be somebody? Security? Success? Verse 10 again, And you shall dwell with us, and the land shall be with you. Dwell and trade ye therein. Trade and get you possessions therein. Wow. Everything on a silver platter. Who wouldn't turn this down? Bear in mind, folks, that 20 years before this moment, Jacob would have jumped at this offer. Jumped at it. All of this is a generous proposition from a worldly point of view. That's the problem. This was a worldly offer. This is the best. What I just showed you those three things. That's the very best that that world out there, the unsaved man, can offer you. Fortunately, Jacob had already wrestled with God. He ought to wrestled with the Lord Jesus Christ, and fortunately, he still has a limp in his step to remind him that he's a pilgrim, that he is a stranger in this world. But Satan's not finished with him yet. This time, he's going to use Hamor's son. Verse 11, And, and Shechem said unto 
her father and under her brethren, let me find grace in your eyes, and, and what ye shall say unto me I will give. Ask me never so much dowry and gift, and I will give according as ye shall say unto me, but give me the damsel to wife. In other words, you know what he says? Name your price, Jacob. He's rich. I told you. Name your price. Whatever you want. Money. So that in addition to the offer of society, the offer of security and success, he's offering silver and lots of it. And again, beloved, had Jacob simply agreed to these terms, it would have wiped out the patriarchal line. That means the promised seed of the woman. In one generation, think of that, in one single generation, Satan would have destroyed that so that, yes, he is at work and he's working hard to stop and still is to this moment, as we'll see in the weeks ahead. I want you to notice something. This is not the only tack that Satan is going to take as a result of Dinah's downward step. He's never finished. The devil will never be finished with trying to destroy God's plan because I've already read the end. He, he tries all, all the way. He comes with great wrath in the tribulation. Verse 13. And the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor his father deceitfully. Well, that's not a faith move, is it? So they're kind of like, you know, we'll figure out something. And he said, because he had defiled their sister. And they said unto them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one that is uncircumcised, for that will approach unto us. But in this we will consent. We will consent unto you if you will be as we be that every male of you be circumcised, then we will give our daughters unto you. And we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we'll become one people. Mm. I'm not going to dwell tonight on, at length at least, not on this whole sad state of affairs and what happens here. You can read it tonight. Most of you already know it. But just suffice it to say that Jacob's sons, Levi and Simeon in particular here, and of course they are the sons of Leah, so it makes sense why they're the ones who are the most angry about Dinah. They lie to Hamer. They lie to Shechem, and they do so. Here's the, here's the basis of their lie. They lie by using the very sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Circumcision. They use that, God's own covenant deceitfully, to put Hamor at a disadvantage, and then they slaughter. They slaughter them all. Go down to verse 25. And it came to pass on the third day when they were sore, the two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brethren, took each man his sword and came upon the city boldly and slew all the males. And they slew Hamor and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went out. Verse 29. And all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives took they captive. It sounds like Hamas. And spoiled even all that was in the house. Now folks, this is bad. Matter of fact, this is really, really bad news. This is plan B for Satan. And it almost worked. If the other wasn't going to work, Satan's a murderer from the beginning. 
And they're resorting to his tactics here. If Jacob didn't fall for plan A, this is plan B. Why? Look at verse 30. And Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me to make me distinct among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and I being few in number, they shall gather themselves together against me and slay me, and I shall be destroyed, and I and my house. And guess what? He's absolutely right. Absolutely right. Jacob stands and he stares in horror at the vast amount of spoil, stolen goods, blood all over it. Levi and Simeon are hauling into their camp. Newly made orphans and widows are weeping and wailing as they drag them in and with dismay. Jacob says, what have you done? What have you done? You have made us vile and you made us vulnerable. We're going to die. You know, Jacob never really forgave these boys for this, as you're going to see in chapter 49. You can't really blame them. Their very existence now is in jeopardy. And their daughter is defiled. His daughter is defiled. And now his sons are murderers. Do you see what lack of faith does? This is a very expensive detour that goes back to his own, Jacob's own lack of faith and unbelief and not following God fully and being in Bethel. However, God made a promise to Abraham, didn't he? And God, the Bible tells us, is full of mercy. In fact, when God gives his name to Moses and the people, he says, he says, make sure you tell them, I am full of mercy. I am merciful and full of loving kindness. So that the very next word in the Bible is the voice of God. We're going to close with this. Look at verse, chapter 35, verse 1. And God said unto Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel. Now, here's what we would say. Way to go, Jacob. Made your bed, lie in it. I told you a long time ago. God said to Jacob, Arise. Go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fled, fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. By the way, guess what? In this chapter, chapter 35, God is referred to more than 20 times. Zero in the chapter before, 20 times in the chapter to come. I tell you something, beloved, life is a whole lot simpler when God is in the center of that life. You see, folks, Going from chapter 34 to chapter 35 is like traveling from a desert to a garden. When God said to Jacob, get thee out of this place and go back to Bethel, he's demonstrating his mercy. God is showing his grace, his love, his long-suffering, and yes, also his faithfulness to his word. His faithfulness to his promise. Know this carefully. It has been a long 30 years, 30 now, since Jacob first went to Bethel. And after all of these years, he sits here, he is weary, he is brokenhearted, he's devastated, he's backslidden. He's suffering for his only daughter and his sons. They say that for a father, his son is his pride and his daughter is his joy. Jacob's own decisions have hurt his pride and joy. And yet, sitting there in his despair, God speaks to him. 
Wow, God comes to him and he says, okay, Jacob, now I'm telling you again, go back to Bethel. Your name is Israel. You know what? You've made mistakes, but you don't have to stay here. If ever a man needed the voice of God, it was Jacob at Shechem. And I'm going to say this, there are going to be times in your life, maybe not as dramatic as this, as far as the sin and the hurt and the pain, but there will be times where God in His great mercy will whisper to you, don't stay here. You're away from me. You're, you're suffering the consequences of foolish and sinful decisions, but don't stay here. You're cynical and you're weeping and you're outside of the promised land. And God says, hey, I'm telling you, you don't stay here. You don't have to stay here. Go back to Bethel and I'll be with you. And that's because God still has his purposes and his plans for you in his kingdom. I remember my sophomore year in Bible college. Spiritually and physically, I was at the very, very end. I think this happens to everybody in college at some point in Bible college. My grandpa had just died of throat cancer, and I was very close to him, and I preached his funeral, and it was so difficult. I over-absence a required course. Of all things, the course was leadership. <laughs> I over that class, so I lost, I got a zero. My school bill, it wasn't my fault, just let me just say that, it wasn't my fault, over it really wasn't. My school bill was mounting up, I didn't have any way I had to, to pay for it. I had strep throat, I was in the clinic for two weeks. My boss at UPS, where I worked in Chicago because I'd been sick so long, was threatening to let me go. It was the worst winter in Chicago, look it up, in 150 years. Nobody of my friends, nobody in the school seemed to know that I was in the infirmary because I was in there by myself day and night. And for a dozen other reasons, I decided to write a letter home asking for money for a plane ticket just so I could quit and come back home. The next day, my fever broke, and I sneaked out of the infirmary, um, just sneaked out, went down to a place called Peddler's Way. Peddler's Way was down, and this was an old Catholic monastery where our college was, and they had a, a basement basement, and that was where it was like the bookstore, snacks and all that. And I was sitting there drinking a Coke, and there was a song on by B.B. McKinney called Back to Bethel. And the lyrics, I was listening to them, I was sitting there, you know, contemplating when I could get a plane ticket to go home, and it said, back to Bethel I must go, back where the rivers of sweet waters flow, back to the true life my soul longs to know, Bethel is calling, and I must go. And I listened to that, and, and when it was finished, I went over to the guy at the counter who I knew well, and I said, Roger, can you play that same song again? They were always playing music in the bookstore, and he did. And with tears running down my face, I heard those words. Back to the prayer life in Christ I once knew. Back to the beautiful life cleansing do. Back to help others to conquer each foe. Bethel is calling and I must go. Back to the beautiful path I once trod. Back to the church and the people of God. Out of the cold world of sin and its woe. Bethel is calling and I must go. This is what God was giving to Jacob. Look at verse 7. And he built there an altar and called the place El Bethel. He renamed it. Bethel means house of God. El Bethel means the God of the house of God. That's way better. 
Because there God appeared unto him when he fled from the face of his brother. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had a chapter without God in your life? Have you ever had a period of time when it seemed like he wasn't listening or because you were disobedient, you had drifted away from God? Those of you listening by live stream now, it's rough, it's empty, it's dreary. I can tell you that God in his love always says, don't stay here anymore. Don't stay. If you're his child, he'll tell you, get up. Go back to Bethel. You know, beloved, it's very important to remember that what we've been studying tonight is the Word of God. I know you know that, but I want you to think about this for a moment. This, these words are from God. This is the Word of God. This is the same Word of God that we studied in our first message where it talks about creation and the stars and the planets and the oceans and then later the flood. The same God. This is the Word of God. Well, what does that mean, Pastor? Here's what it means. If these are God's words, that means that God was very attuned to every little detail of Jacob's life. This is God telling us about all these little details. This is God telling us about his fears and his failures and his faults and what Dinah did. God is very attuned to the minutest details of his own children, including you tonight. And you know what that means? That means he's in control. That means you don't, fear may come upon you, but don't let fear come into you. You're a child of the most high God. Oh, but pastor, look around. Look what's happening. God is on his throne. He's going to finish this glorious plan of redemption. And he wins. We've read the last chapter. He wins. And if you're his child, you win with him. And all God's people said, Father, thank you for your word. And I pray God that we will each and every time we open this book and look into it as a mirror, we'll be changed from glory to glory. And Lord, be reminded over and over again that faithlessness and unbelief and decisions made out of faithlessness and fear will always lead to hurt and pain and destruction. But if we will trust you and your word and all these promises, just embrace them, then we will see that chapter where you're in our lives and there is comfort and strength and boldness and faith and fruitfulness. May it be seen in all of us and in this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.